Hello, I'm Philip Brain. And I'm Harry Clennon. And you're listening to Reflections by Spectacles. Today we're going to be talking about an insight that Harry wrote about the Nord Stream 2 natural gas pipeline from Russia to Germany and the lesson it reveals about how globalization can sometimes empower bad actors. So Harry, first of all, you know, I'm obviously biased, but I thought this was a really interesting article and I I enjoyed working with you on it because it's a topic that sort of came up in our bird's eye episode this past weekend and i thought it was really interesting so i was happy to explore it more but i guess i'm curious about how globalization can advantage bad actors i mean you get into it in the article but maybe we can just go into some more detail yeah i mean i think if you think about the global economic system that we have now in in very simple terms right there's an exchange of goods that takes place between a lot of different countries. And, you know, we have things that other countries want, other countries have things that we want. In the case of something as important as energy, right, in this case, if we're talking about energy, we might not be all that concerned with where we're getting it. I mean, right. you know, this is well, about... we haven't been historically. Right. Historically, we have not been concerned about it. So, right, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, the United States has... Uh, a relationship with Saudi Arabia where it gets a lot of oil. In this case, we're talking about Europe, but specifically Germany, getting natural gas from Russia, which is the uh, world's second largest producer of natural gas, and I believe the largest supplier to Europe of natural gas. Yeah. And so if you think about it in terms of, well, if we all just trade with each other and we, you know, you know, in a simple market sense, right? You know, I have something that you want, you have something that I want, I pay you for it, it works out, right? If you look at it sort of blindly, even from a neutral perspective, and in the piece I argue that it, that this, these things aren't neutral, but if you look at it from even a neutral perspective, authoritarian countries will have things that non-authoritarian countries want. Right. And so if you're going to extend this system of, you know, free trade or free movement of goods to the world, you are, you know, you, you could easily find yourself in a situation where authoritarians are reaping the benefits. And as, as I point out, I think that was sort of contradictory right. to the intentions of the architects of economic globalization, such as if you want to call the policymakers who were active in the 80s and 90s as the architects of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, then you can. But I think there's, there's you know, of course, there's on the one hand, the fact that they get to some sort of play in the game, right? right? And all else being equal, you know, maybe that wouldn't be such a such a bad thing. I mean, of course, we have concerns about human rights abuses in other countries, right? Right. But it seems to go to sort of be on another level, let's say, because it seems to me that there's a significant di- significant difference between the situation between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia and Europe and Russia in terms of power differential, particularly because at least today the U.S can produce all its energy at home if it had to, right? There's no country that can really like cut off the U.S. and we would be crippled by it. Whereas with Europe... Of course, it's it's a totally different Somewhat situation. Somewhat different story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I and think- it seems to be that I guess just what I'm getting at is it seems to be there's a there's a particular danger here, wherein an autocracy seems to be leveraging power through what is supposed to be sort of free and open global trade, leveraging its power over over Europe, and maybe putting 
countries in it, particularly Ukraine, into compromising positions. Right. Yeah, I think it's obvious that in this case, Russia possesses a lot of power because it holds a resource that, especially right now with a, with, a, with an energy shortage, the nations of Europe see as valuable. Although I, we have to make a distinction here between Germany, which is you know in this agreement to have this pipeline come to its coast, right, from the western coast of Russia to the northern coast of Germany, and the rest of Europe. The rest of Europe is, to varying degrees, not super thrilled but germany is really the is considers itself right it's, it's a german project with russia right um and russia has this power in this situation right? I, I, sometimes i think people think of russia as this really powerful country and it is powerful because it has nuclear weapons but it also in the economic sphere russia is not a particularly powerful nation i think it's like the world's 33rd largest economy something along those lines but in this case it does have this economic power which it right. is leveraging a resource power which it is leveraging against europe potentially i mean it, the europe the claim is that russia might be withholding supplies of natural gas that it could be giving to Europe or selling to Europe at fair prices be during this this energy crisis. Maybe it's doing that. Maybe it's not. I think you know there's good reason for them to for Vladimir Putin to do so if he wants Germany to quickly approve the Nord Stream right. two pipeline. Right. But yes, that's a meandering way of saying you're making an important point, asking an important question, which is that power does matter in these situations, and so. The world system, the world economic system, as I point out in this piece, is biased towards those actors who are powerful. And I guess that's not a particularly shocking thing to say, but sometimes I guess we think of like, you know, this sort of neutral trading system that goes on in the world. And clearly it's biased towards certain actors. Not I mean, yeah, I think it's the the analogy drawn in the article about an unregulated domestic economy, sort of the same thing. In a neutral system, even if it is actually, you know, effectively literally neutral yeah things which are neutral are biased towards those who can advocate for their own interests most strongly yeah exactly right? so if there's no sort of redistributive or balancing mechanisms at play that constrain behavior simply the strong do what they will and the weak suffer what they must thank you thucydides um <laughs> so yeah i mean i would actually say in the grand scheme of things russia is probably not all that capable of balancing the political the global economic system and it's agreed because it is very powerful economically right i think you can say that the united states um europe to a significant extent and then china are the ones who probably you know reap the the biggest benefits from the yeah. global economic system and the United States is still, I think, the biggest beneficiary, not because it's a democracy. I mean, par maybe partially because it's a democracy, because liberalism generates the kind of economic growth, Going thinking about our recent bird's eye episodes on economic growth and regime. If, if you haven't listened to it, that's episode one of the Stationary Bandit right. series. It was uh, not this past weekend, but the weekend before. We'll link it in the show notes. Uh, yeah. Same with the other episode that we referenced earlier. Yeah. So the United States has a lot of power in the international system and is able to structure the global economic system in ways that it wants. And so, you know, in this discrete instance, Russia has an enormous amount of power because it has leverage, because it has what the countries of Europe right. want, what the European Union wants right. right now. And I think that that's really important and, to remember and, when we think about globalization. And they're going to continue to need, perhaps increasingly, as, as Germany has gutted its nuclear energy, uh, which accounted for a large portion of their grid. And now they've got to fill that with something. Right. And the infrastructure required to fill it with renewables is, of course takes time yeah whereas filling it in with natural gas is 
can be done right. like that. And the Nord Stream right. pipeline is already constructed. I mean, you, they right. could get it from via Ukraine or Poland or something, right? Countries that are not happy about this pipeline. But now that the pipeline is constructed, if it gets uh, approved by German regulators, I mean, I, I... Which it probably will. Probably will at some point yeah. in the next couple months. Especially with just the fact that it's already built. Already it's done. a very tough political sort of case to make. Yeah. To we take all that infrastructure. On this and now we're not going to... It was $11 billion. It. I don't exactly... Do you know how that cost was distributed between Russia and, and Germany? Who spent what? Do you have any idea? I don't know, but I think that there might be some concern among... I think there's still some costs or that Germany might bear legal costs or something like that for not completing it if they decided all Because they sudden, contracted like, no. the construction. Yeah, yeah, I'm not I'm not totally sure about those those dynamics. Either but. way, the, the point remains that even, even if the Greens get into a stoplight coalition with the SPD and FDP, which we've talked about in a, in a couple previous articles, they're the only party that in their manifesto for, this is a thing in Germany, each party has a, like a manifesto that they release publicly that basically lists their positions on everything. They're the only party that has a stated decisive opinion against the use of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Right. So even if they get into coalition, that said, uh, it's going to be a tough sell with yeah. the amount of momentum that's behind yeah. this project. Yeah. Although it could be tricky for the Greens because they were elected on the basis of being against it. And frequently, one thing that happens in multi-party democracies, without going on too much of a tangent, but I think that is interesting, is that frequently the junior coalition partners struggle to hold up onto their campaign promises and sometimes they can yeah. be punished in future elections yeah. by voters yeah. um yeah so maybe they have an incentive right given their focus on environmentalism maybe they have an incentive to to try and hold things up although i think you're right i think it's unlikely that there's any that changes will be it's not unwinnable but it is an uphill battle yeah yeah so i think but the point right that i think we're sort of circling around here is that We've constructed this global economic system, and by we, I think, really, I mean the United States and and the Harry and, the, and I. Yep, from this <laughs> from this very room. Um, no, the United States and the countries of Western Europe have basically, and, and the UK, which is no longer part of Europe, have constructed no, no longer part of Europe. They left. They're you know they're in they, Asia they now. They took their they took their island and they drove it further out west into the Atlantic now. So. The, the system that has been constructed has worked to the advantage, I think, in a lot of ways, economically, to the advantage of the United States, to the UK, to Western Europe, and in ways that have actually not necessarily been advantageous for the rest of the world at all times, and even not advantageous to their own domestic populations at all times, obviously. But now right. you see that it can be turned against you, right? If you have this idea of free exchange, then why shouldn't Germany just be able to, you know, yeah. do a contract with Russia for this for this natural gas pipeline? And, you know, free exchange says, well, you Ukraine, the free market, the logic of the free market says Ukraine is uh, not able to get the natural Defend, gas yeah. as quickly as possible. To, so they're to them. not. So it's they're irrelevant. And political costs. And why shouldn't Russia be able costs, to right. advocate for itself and increase its own power and leverage over other countries? They're just doing what's best for them. Yeah. So the, the trouble is the disconnect between the promise of globaliz globalism and globalization to help promote democracy and the simple fact of the matter that a free liberal world market, in fact, is regime neutral. Right. Right. And it doesn't care very much at the end of the day how you look. I mean, certain actors like uh, the US or the EU 
may care, theoretically, and they may trade or support countries based on them being democratic, but that hasn't really that really hasn't been realized. No, that hasn't. Been, I mean, this the the economic system overwhelmingly advantages the most powerful countries and their chosen allies, right? So, in the case of the United States, the United States has propped up a brutal autocratic monarchy yeah. in Saudi Arabia for the past oh, what ninety years at this point, eighty or ninety years, and it's protected because it's an asset to us for a lot of reasons, right? And so. I think that's sort of the brutal logic of, of globalization. And I think there were these promises. And I guess maybe I'm somewhat skeptical that leaders were ever really serious about them. Maybe it was just, you know, reinforcing, you know, money flowing into our pockets or whatever. But yeah, it probably varies person. It probably person varies. And it's, there's degree. a tension as well, right? Yeah. I mean, there's like, you know, and so um, I think that the idea was that globalization, especially with respect to China, right? That like bringing China into the global liberal economic right. system would change its behavior, would create a middle class that would want liberal rights and democracy and all that. And that didn't happen, but they participate right. in the system now. We are there. We're so closely linked to them economically, you know, language of competition aside. I mean, we're like sort of inextricable, inseparable trading partners at this point. I mean, any kind of like a quick separation would be brutal for both economies. And they depend on us, we depend on them. And so I think that, you know, that is, right, that's the system that's been built. And I think that, I mean, I, I don't I don't have a good answer. You know, I sort of point in the direction of like what we, sh we should be serious about our original intense with globalization, because I think still on the whole, it's been a good thing. I mean, if we just got more serious about commitments to sharing prosperity and to nonviolently espousing, you know, ideals of self-government, that would be that would be just dandy, well, but I don't but, know how we get there from where we are now. Isn't isn't part of the problem though that it's not that the the system of global trade is ultimately impartial, right? It takes actors to be partial about regime about well, the regime rules type. of the system. I think are not end up do not end up being impartial. I think that the powerful they're, act they're new. They're th what I mean to say is they're they're neutral about what kind of regime they sure. Have. Yes, I right? don't think so they the, care that much about democracy. Or right, not. right. So it takes it takes powerful actors within the system to care about democracy. Right. Yeah. And part of the belief about opening up with China was that these things would just sort of naturally churn out a democratization of the country, right? That the system of international trade and prosperity would generate democracy. But as we're seeing, that's not the case, right? right. And so it, it's a very difficult dilemma between do you not engage with countries, potentially consigning them to some level of poverty, right? right. Or do you engage with them and potentially facilitate the entrenchment and enrichment of an authoritarian state. Yeah, right? I mean, it's so, also potentially, right, there's a recognition that certain factors are outside of our control. Of I mean, course. I'm just, I'm just of sort course. of toying, this is goes against how I concluded the piece, but just sort of toying with an idea here is just like, setting our sights a little bit lower, right? What can we get out of globalization? Not so much, not so lofty promises. I mean, Nord Stream 2 aside, I think, you know, the geopolitical consequences of that mean that it's not in the interest really it is not in the interest of something like of a country like the United States to be in favor of it. it it's not in our right. interest. I am personally very much not a Russia hawk, but I think that, you know, you can sort of lay out pretty clearly why it would not be in the interest of the United States for Europe to get more and more natural gas. It's or not in the interest or, of the, or Ukraine. Right. And it's not really interesting in the environment either. But, you know, with certain cases, maybe 
we're forced to just set our sights a little bit lower and say, well, as long as maybe we can distribute the benefits more equitably at home, it's not that big of a deal to have a system. The, the benefits outweigh the costs, costs as they may be, you know, propping I mean, up authoritarian it's, regimes. It's but. certainly a point worth making that you've got to get your own house in order before you worry about the state of democracy in the world. To, yeah, to some yeah I think that's true. And when it comes to democracy and, and equality, the U.S. certainly does not have its house in order. That is definitely the case. So I don't know. I mean, it's it's a tricky situation. It's a tricky thing to confront because we had these hopes for this system. But it's also important to remember, I think, that what is there's not like some neutral like laws of globalization that exist, you know, outside of human societies, right? We're constantly building and renegotiating the terms of our economic relationships with other countries, and it's there's no coherent form to it. And so there's like these weird bilateral relationships where it's geopolitically colossally beneficial to one country, and it's not neutral politically. And so I think that that's always something to remember. It's not like there's this coherent thing that is globalization. It's just a bunch of different you know phenomena yeah and i mean some people would point to international institutions maybe right like the wto or the the world trade organization or the international monetary fund but you know ultimately those are very much shaped by the interests and demands of the powerful actors within global trade because they themselves the organizations are not powerful without them right that's all for today If you enjoyed, please consider subscribing to the podcast, rate us on iTunes, and share this episode with your friends or on social media. If you'd like to listen to each new episode of Focus and Insight read aloud, follow the link in the show notes for Spectacles Out Loud. If you'd like to read or make a comment on the article we just discussed, there's also a link in the show notes to our website, where you can sign up for our newsletter if you haven't already to receive a new way of seeing politics in your inbox five days a week. And find us on Twitter, at Spectacles Media. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks. Thanks.